If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Alexandreou and with me on secondment from Doomsday Watch, I have Arthur Snell. Good morning, Arthur. How are you? I'm very well, Alex. Right. We have a lot to cover, so let's get cracking. After a, a torrid week for his three economic pledges, Sunak is starting this one in trouble again on Stop the Boats. Yet another Tory grouping called New Conservatives have published their plan on immigration. What does it entail? Well, it entails the things that you would do if you want to get the headline number of immigration down and you have no interest in the UK economy flourishing in any way. And, you know, we've been around this this sort of particular boy so many times. So not letting graduate students stay on after their studies, making it harder for care workers to come here, and then caps on various schemes such as the Ukraine scheme. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, you know, there's a reason that we we allow care workers in because there is, as everybody knows, there's an incredible crisis even at the moment for, yeah. care, for, for carers. And there are other areas of the economy where there's a labour market crisis at the moment. Yeah, 140,000 vacancies in the social care sector, last figures right. I, I looked at. So the care worker thing is particularly mad, isn't it? Well, it is, but it, it's what it shows. And, you know, one doesn't want to be dismissive, but this is not the, a collection of the sharpest tools in the box uh, who've come up with this plan. And in the most generous possible sort of analysis, uh, these are people who are probably not likely to achieve prime ministerial office, e- even in the modern Tory party. And so mm. I think what, what you're looking at is people who, who have a, you know, Lee Anderson being one of them, a fairly s- simple idea that we think there are too many immigrants, so we want there to be fewer immigrants, and we've looked at the way that people come here, and these look like the easy ways to stop them. And, and not, with no interest on what's the economy doing, you know, what, what are the wider needs of our country, and so on. Arthur, if you look at polling, this is not a huge issue for voters. I mean, it is top five, but behind things like the economy, cost of living or the NHS, and importantly, by a long way, only 5% of people have it as their most important issue. Yeah. But if you look at Tory voters more specifically, it shoots up in importance. Have they made this rod for their own back, basically, by you know, going on about immigration for years, they have created an expectation in their own voters. Oh, I think definitely. I mean, let's not forget that in 2010, David Cameron said that that immigration will be below 100,000 in the tens of thousands. And that has persisted. So, you know, and Cameron, of course, you know, arguably a sort of, you know, centrist Tory. Uh, this, This myth has persisted. And then, of course, it got subsumed into the Brexit 
debate. Mm. Yes, many people didn't vote Brexit because of immigration, but a hell of a lot of people did. And I think you're right that Tory voters, and maybe in particular so-called red wall Tory voters, are particularly interested in these issues. And then they had their defeat in the Court of Appeal last week, which makes them very vulnerable. Towards the end of last week, we also got a lot of mutterings about leaving the European Convention of Human Rights, having a referendum on it. Do you think it is possible that the Conservatives are pivoting towards using a referendum of the ECHR as a ramp for the next election? Well, it's an interesting one. If, if you learn from your mistakes, one of the things you would learn is that promising a referendum when you don't expect to win an election and then having to go through with it ends up badly. And, and you would think that David Cameron could give that advice. But I guess desperation uh, leads to desperate things. I mean, of course, leaving the European Convention on Human Rights wouldn't help here necessarily because it was the Court of Appeal, not the European judges, that scotched it this time. And it may just be that there's quite a lot of sort of fundamental elements of natural justice that are not served by this deeply unpleasant migration plan. I see them trying to basically replay their greatest hits in desperation and trying to find another Brexit. It's just, I'm not sure whether even people who are passionate about all this stuff and, and want to sever any link with anything that has to do with Europe. I don't know what the appetite would be for another referendum that divides the country, like even from people who are for this. I can see a lot of people going, oh God, not again. Is it a vote winner? Could it be a vote winner? I mean, the idea of specifically of a referendum, I can't see it being a vote winner. I could imagine that in certain circles, leaving the ECHR and portraying the ECHR as this sort of out of control, woke court or, you know, whatever nonsense they come up with. I could see that that might work. But again, it will only work in some places. It won't work where I live in Cheltenham, where, you know, the the sitting MP is defending a narrowest margin against the Lib Dems. So Tories have gone down a certain pathway on this migration stuff that that it plays in certain parts of the country and, and not even in all the places they want to try to hold on to seats. Yeah, and they've run out of road on it. Um, yeah. Now, the, the Stop the Boats pledge is not the only one in trouble. The government... Uh, announced a new NHS staffing plan last week, which was yep. broadly welcomed. But they seem to have no ideas on how to keep current staff from striking or leaving. Junior doctors and now consultants have strikes coming up. I mean, is there any hope of reducing waiting lists while this is going on? No. And and this is, I mean, this is equivalent. If you If you rang the fire brigade... And your house is on fire. And they say, look, we've got a staffing plan. So, you know, by, by um, the, the middle of the next decade, we're going to have a fully staffed f- fire station. You, you, you might say, yes, but my house is still on fire. Yeah. Generally, uh, I, I think that is what's happening here. That the, the staffing plan, if we're completely generous and say, yes, this will work, and you'll have loads more doctors and nurses and physicians assistants, which is this sort of halfway house, which could be useful, if you can make all that work and improve retention, then yes, by 2037, you might have a well-staffed NHS, but that doesn't do anything about the people now. And of course, the staffing plan, which by the way, focuses on making doctors less well-trained, 
there are two problems with that. One is that, um, of course, it doesn't deal with the current issue of retention. All the people off, heading off to Australia and, and you know, and, and other places around the world where they think they can do better as doctors. But the other f- aspect of it is, and, and this I know from, you know, current medical practitioners, is that there, there's a certain concern that, well, are, are we going to cheapen what is currently seen as a bit of a gold standard in terms of UK medical training mm-hmm. so that in future we won't be able to get those jobs in places like Australia? So that would have a, you know, a, a sort of a double whammy effect on, yeah, yeah, yeah. On, on the workforce. What's the exit strategy here, uh, Arthur? Government is refusing to even talk to doctors. What do you think is the exit plan? I think they still believe that, on balance, the public will be persuadable that doctors are the problem. Doctors are well-paid professionals, many of whom you know live live very comfortable middle-class lifestyles, and they're the ones making you have to wait longer for certain you know treatments or whatever. And you know, there's a degree to which Jeremy Hunt managed to do that last time round with the junior doctors' strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the difference is that the the overall state of the NHS is is so much more desperate now. Mm. And I think that's where you you would have to be a sort of living under a rock not to realise that the NHS is in desperate straits mm. and therefore that doctors are under unbelievable pressure. Now, nurses fell short of the required mandate for strike actions, but train drivers this week are providing a useful reminder that strikes are not the only way to disrupt a service, which relies largely on on a lot of goodwill from its employees. What's happening? Yeah, so there's basically a sort of good old-fashioned work to rule where the, the train drivers are are working strictly within their, their standard hours and no overtime. And again, perhaps as an example of how stretched our system is, that means that it is very hard for the rail network to function in those circumstances. And that's separate from the actual strikes, which they've got planned later in the month, which are timed to cause, you know, screw ups when people are trying to get to the tennis at Wimbledon and various other sort of major national events. So as has been said before, you know, this idea of the summer of of discontent, sadly, I think we are living through that. Mm. Well, the winter of discontent seems to be turning into a summer of discontent and going into another winter of discontent. Morphing seamlessly. Yeah, we also have news that uh, energy prices will climb again um, next year. Why doesn't Sunak call an election? What does he hope might improve? That's the bit I don't get in all of this. Yeah, I I don't know either. I mean, obviously he he knows he's he's not going to win, and I, I've I've heard from people in in you know close in inside government who who know that he knows this, and he's quite interested in looking at other career options that might exist for him in something like the World Bank or some, you know, some big, yeah. big international thing like that. So I suspect that what he's trying to do is be prime minister for a length of time that doesn't look like one of those joke Tory prime ministers of the <laughs> 2020s, you know, um, and that the, his sort of stump speech when when he's the, the guy being paid a quarter of a million to give a speech at some some 
you know, tech conference mm, mm. will be, you know, crisis leadership, how I how I led a country in, in, in its sort of most desperate hour or something. And mm. I, th- I suppose he thinks that he can't do that if it's if he's only been PM for less than two years. Looking at the week ahead in Parliament seems to provide little respite for Sunak. What shall we look forward to? Well, he's, he's got his um, his appearance before the liaison committee on Tuesday. And I think this will be quite interesting because we don't see very much of Sunak actually um, sort of in an unscripted manner having to face quite probing questions. And and as we all know that, that you know the liaison committee can when it's sort of working well can be a pretty a pretty difficult environment you know just, just to remind listeners this is the chairs of the various select committees so all of them are experienced parliamentarians and they can sort of take the question anywhere they like and one of the obvious ones would be the Sunak's famous five pledges which of course every when they came out everyone said well he's he you know he's he's written the question to ensure that he knows the answer but it it now looks like mm, you know the the inflation thing's gone out of whack the, the NHS crisis is ongoing the small boats issue is has not been fixed and of course the, the both the Rwanda plan being uh you know set back and and all the rest of it um so i think there's quite a lot to to give him an uncomfortable grilling on One final thing on the domestic front before we look at things more international. Um, Nigel Farage says he had his bank accounts closed and the entire ultra-right space seems to have gone into meltdown of either solidarity or scorn. Um, what do you think is going on? Well, this is, this, you, have to be, uh, you have to be sort of faintly amused by all this. I think it's even the lead story in the Daily Telegraph, which shows you how far that newspaper has fallen. I'm talking (laughs) about the free speech rights of bank account holders. Now, of course, (laughs) a bank is a a private business, and any bank makes a choice whether or not they want to bank you. And of course, your normal, um, uh, you know, retail bank current account doesn't make them very much money. This is I'm not saying, you know, will no one think of the bankers. Clearly we can we can say what we like about bankers, but they don't make much money from holding accounts, even for someone rich like Nigel Farage. So now and then banks will say to a customer, we don't need you anymore. And in particular, and, and this is something I've got a little bit of professional knowledge of, uh, in the last sort of ten years, there's been a big push for banks to really bear down on any account where there could be the, the slightest risk of money laundering or of mm. payments received from sanctioned entities or anything that looks either reputational or potentially regulatory difficult. Now, yeah, and, and it works and it works almost al- algorithmically, doesn't yes, it? Yes, exactly. There's, there's like alarms in place that if yes. if certain amounts come from certain places, yeah. Yeah. A, a big red light goes on and, and exactly. says basically problem. And and I know for a fact that that in this country, if you have a Muslim-sounding name, for years people have found that their bank accounts might arbitrarily get closed, or a charity which perhaps does activities in Palestine and maybe has you know rubbed up the, the wrong way alongside the Israeli authorities might get its account shut down. Now, from the reporting that I've seen, uh, Nigel Farage. Uh, was banking at HSBC. HSBC has been fined over the years hundreds of millions, maybe even billions, by the US government 
for lax controls. And it is as a result of this that it is, you know, it, ha it, it has a program to sort of, uh, you know, de-risk, as they would call mm, it, mm, such mm. accounts. So now, obviously, I, I'm definitely not accusing my, Nigel Farage of money laundering, but it, it seems to be very possible that he's being paid money by RT, Russia Today, and that's a sanctioned entity. So things like that are, are enough to get your bank, bank account closed down. Right. Onwards to France. A quiet a couple of nights. Do you think order is beginning to reassert itself or is this just a lull? No, I, I think it is. I think that there is a, you know, it's a cliche to say this, but there is a feature of French public life in which fairly large scale riots can break out and, and, they, and they seem to have a natural cycle and they sort of blow themselves out. Um, this is not to suggest that there's any lack of seriousness to the underlying issue, the police killing. And interestingly, I was on the Oh God, What Now podcast with Marie Leconte last week, and she raised this story before the riots had really begun as, mm -hmm. as an issue that was under the radar. Credit to her for, for noting it. And, and oh, you know, it, it, it is not the first time this has happened. Apparently, the rules of engagement of French police have changed, and it has resulted in more people being killed by police. Uh, and clearly, th this is a problem in a, in a country that is undoubtedly a, a fully liberal democracy. I mean, the thing it is most like is actually the London riots of 2011. Yep. Very it, similar. It's, yeah. It is almost identical in sort of uh, cause and development. Yes. Um, now, the French constitution prohibits a president from running for a third consecutive term. Does Macron basically not care anymore? I think he cares a lot about certain things. You know, the fact that he pushed through this retirement reform or, or certainly, you know, pushed it as, as far as he could shows that he, you know, he's, he's definitely an arrogant person, but I think it's fair to say he's, he's gifted as well. He believes that he is right about certain things and he, he knows he's not running for re-election, so he's not worried about popularity and he thinks he can, you know, improve France in certain ways. But I think Macron's problem has always been, he's somebody from the elite. In, he, I mean, he, in some respects, he's a little bit like Rishi Sunak. You know, he works mm -hmm. as a banker. He, he comes from a, from a very comfortable background. I mean, he's clearly a much more gifted politician, but he's not somebody who I, I, I would imagine has a very natural understanding of the challenges of people in the banlieue, people of, of North African heritage, people who face structural racism, which is undoubtedly present in, in the French situation. Mm. And whilst Macron is clearly you know, someone on the liberal side, somebody who, who has a progressive outlook, he, he probably lacks an instinctive ability to understand the challenges that people in, in those situations face. Now, Arthur, it was not a quiet night for West Bank. Um, why are things getting so much worse again in that conflict? And, and how can they get better? It's a very good question. So something that's been happening over the past year is the West Bank, which historically has been a relatively stable bit of the Palestinian territories. Everyone's heard about Gaza and, and, and the various sort of Israeli military incursions there. But the West Bank was supposedly a little bit more settled. But actually, what, what we've seen there is a kind of radicalization uh, happening. And, and that is basically because the Palestinian Authority has become completely sclerotic. I mean, it was, it was never a dynamic entity, but it is now really, uh, you know, Mahmoud Abbas is, I forget how old he is, but he's, he's you know, he's barely functioning. And yet mm. he's still the, the, the sort of arguably kind of 
head of state. And of course, this is this is not to suggest that the challenges aren't there for the Palestinians. You know, they, they're they're starved of resources. The Israelis have been very successful at limiting the degree to which they can even sort of start the process of of kind of quasi state formation. But what you've seen as a result of this radicalization is an increasing tempo of Israeli uh, kinetic military raids into the into the West Bank. And that has accelerated under what is now basically a hard right government that, that Israel has um, at the moment. It is basically very tragic. You know, the civilians die every time. And of course, there are there are cases of Palestinians killing Israeli civilians as well. So it's, it's never a one sided story. Um, but I think there's this sort of the, the, the depths of hopelessness uh, which the Palestinians find themselves in is, is pretty depressing. But I would argue that it's ultimately that that's what Israel intended, that they wanted to uh, create a, a scenario where the, the Palestinians had no chance mm-hmm. of ever creating a viable state. I couldn't let you go without getting a, a, an update on the Ukraine situation. We don't seem to be getting a huge amount of news from the actual front at the moment. I know this is strange to say in July, but there are not many weeks left before the ground gets wet again. Unless we get a breakthrough, are we basically looking at another entrenched winter? Well, I think that might be a risk. The, the latest news as of today, you know, is is not brilliant. There's The Ukrainians have made some advances in the south, but the Russians have also made advances further east. Um, there was this sort of ongoing sense that, that you know, people would, were urging the Ukrainians to start their counteroffensive. And to be honest, a lot of it is people who just sort of, you know, ar- armchair military historians mm-hmm. who find it interesting to watch a war unfold. Now, I'm not accusing these people of bad faith or anything, but it's, you know, ultimately, I think sometimes we forget really what, what this means in, in terms of the realities of it. But the, the, the challenge is that, you know, Ukraine is, is grinding away uh, against extremely well-entrenched uh, Russian defences. And it may be that they're even better, better entrenched than people realised. Mm. And, and this thing is going to go on for months and months. Now, the Prigozhin mutiny didn't cause the Russian line to collapse. The recent arrest of General Surovikin, who, in fact, the the defensive line is known as the Surovikin line. I mean, it just gives you an idea Mm -hmm. of how important this general is to them. But his arrest doesn't seem to have caused the Russians to collapse. And I think there is something which, of course, at the beginning of the war, when it was Ukrainians defending their ground, everyone talked about the numerical advantage uh, that you need to attack entrenched yeah. defenders and of course you know those tables are now turned so obviously it is not time to sort of say well this isn't going to work but i think we just have to realize that it's it's a slow and drawn out business and that's it for today you are now ready to start your week if you enjoyed it remember to tune in for another bunker tomorrow and you can support our getting up at 6 a.m to do this for as little as three pounds a month on the funding platform patreon you also get a shout out on this show and here are some now my thanks for your support to thea marie rishovd naranti's kitchen and john lane thank you arthur and thanks to you for listening to start your week have a good one
Start Your Week with the Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andreu and Arthur Snell. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.